church, the book of Acts is the exciting story of the early church that multiplied, expanded across the Roman Empire until it had reached Rome itself, the, vast, the capital of the vast empire. It began as a small group of Jewish believers, only 120 Jewish believers. They began in a prayer meeting, but they began um, fueled by the Spirit, fueled by prayer. <coughs> they began to multiply and expand all across the empire until by the end of the book of Acts, it was a large, international, mostly Gentile, some Jew uh, gathering uh, of, a, of, a, of an expanding, healthy, vibrant church despite considerable persecution and opposition. Now, in our past, we, we looked last week at the first of four portraits in the early church. Last week was the end of Acts 2, the summary right on the first day of the church, right, right in the early weeks. And then the next thing that happens in Acts 3, Peter and John are on their way to the Temple Mount. Uh, there's a, a beggar there that they heal. He gets up, he's dancing around, and the crowd comes running, a lot of commotion, and Peter preaches Jesus to the Lord's crowd there, and thousands come to faith. The religious leaders who thought that six weeks before they'd kind of stamped out this Christian stuff when they killed Jesus, they're furious that it's still going on and thousands are being added to their faith. So they arrest Peter and John. They threaten them that you better stop preaching Jesus, and then they release them. At that point, we come to our passage in Acts 4. They've just been released. If you'll stand with me, I'm going to read Acts 4, beginning in verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your, and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. Can you imagine this scene? Can you imagine being there that day in Jerusalem? Peter and John come back. They've just been released, and they're relieved that they weren't executed like Jesus was. They tell the church that we've been threatened, that we better stop preaching Jesus. What do you do if you're part of that group? What's your instinctive response? Well, our, our, our response as humans times of crisis tends to be that we worry and fret ourselves. Or maybe we begin calling other people, you know, who do I have that can help with this situation? 
Or coming to a group like this, there's a tendency to respond with strategizing, organizing, brainstorming, planning, and discussing at length what's going on. And maybe a brief prayer at the start and the end. That tends to be the instinctive response even in the American church. What did they do when they heard this uh, very critical news? They lift their voices together in prayer to God. They call out to God. They call out to God in, uh, to, together. They call out to God desperately. They call out to God with all their hearts. Not that it's wrong to brainstorm, discuss, organize, strategize, but the first response, the instinctive response, and the immediate response is prayer because they were so desperate for God. And I asked, are we desperate enough that that becomes more and more our instinctive response to problems and challenges and crises of life? Now, you and I have a distinct disadvantage over some believers. And here is your disadvantage, money, affluence, most affluent nation ever, probably. Besides that, we don't have the intense overt persecution where they could come in here and arrest me and throw me in jail and maybe execute me this week. Maybe it'll get that way, but it's not that way now. Now, if we lived in those areas, I just looked over at Sergei uh, Kirpinov. Sergei and, and Victoria were kicked out of Uzbekistan for the gospel. They got that there. Many other countries have that. But we have so much money and so little overt persecution that it is easy to think that we can rely on our money or our network or education or those other things. Those aren't bad things. But do we recognize that if we want God to intervene, if we want God to work, then we've got to be desperate for God? Should we not, even despite an affluent culture and the lack of overt uh, intense persecution, should we not still be desperate given the fact the horrific problems and evils plaguing our society and getting worse and worse? Should we not? In light of the rampant divorce and family breakdowns all around us, the abortions and the abuse of women and children all around us, the alcoholism and drug addictions all around us, the crime and the fear, the racism and the hate, the suicides and the depressions, with all of these problems and more, should we as the church not be desperate that God would intervene? Should we not? We should. We should. And so we are desperate. We just need to wake up and realize it and to feel that way. Early church, they knew they were desperate for God because they knew that prayer is the main work that we do before we get to the stage of brainstorming, organizing, studying, or planning. It's the main thing. First thing that we see in the passage that we learn from the early church about prayer, and they were a great church of prayer. It is one of the big themes in the book. The first thing we learn is that's the first and immediate response. Second thing is that not only did they pray, but they prayed together. They lifted their voices together to God. There is something about the heart of God who loves, who loves unity, loves us to call out to God together. Now, all of us pray on our own, and we should. It's vital that we do that. But when we gather together, Sunday mornings, Wednesday nights, home church groups, when we gather together, 
and call out to God, there is something about the heart of God that just loves that. It loves that. There's, there's, there's more fire. I mean, think about a few individual logs set on fire, the difference between putting those logs together and setting them on fire. A lot more heat, a lot more power, and God loves it when we join our voices together in prayer. So we've seen their immediate response is prayer. We've seen that they prayed together to God. Third thing that, that we see here is the way they viewed God. Now, I particularly like this. But man, when they call out to God, they don't call out to a tame God. They call out, we see in verse 24. They say, Sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea, and everything in them. That God is the one we're talking to, the sovereign, holy king and ruler of the universe who made everything that has been made. We pray to you, O God. A bit later they say, Lord, they did whatever your hand and your plan predestined to happen because you're the sovereign God. They prayed to a great and holy and infinite God. And when we pray, we recognize and we realize and we remind ourselves how great God is, it changes our praying. In fact, when you pray to God the way they prayed to God and see Him like they saw Him, it is impossible to have a drab, boring prayer. It's impossible because we, we recognize the greatness of God and rather than kind of you know, kind of nod off, we're putting our crash helmets on and buckling up our seatbelts because God is at work. And we recognize that He is listening to our prayers. And, and you cannot pray and God not hear you. That's impossible. If you're in Jesus Christ, you, you cannot pray and God not hear you. He's a prayer-hearing God. He tells us a thousand times in the Scriptures, over and over and over, pray, 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 ask they realized God was sovereign and that he worked sovereignly through the prayers of his people. Andrew Murray was a great South African pastor, and he put it this way. He said, God rules the nations by the prayers of his saints. Do you know that? That's where the real power is. He rules the nations. History belongs to the intercessors, as someone else put it. How can you and I see God as he is more and more. How can we have this elevated view of God that the early church had? Three things, three simple things. One, saturate yourselves in Scripture day after day after day because if you saturate yourself in Scripture, your view of God is just going to expand. It will. Secondly, be a worshiper because there is a power about worship. It touches into your heart, not just your brain, and it transforms your image of God. Earlier today, when Colin and the team was leading us in Good, Good Father, if you were engaged at a heart level there, something was happening to your heart. Now, if you were there watching your neighbors, uh, nothing was happening in your heart. I mean, if you were just sort of disengaged in mind and just watching your neighbors, nothing happened. When you, uh, if you were engaged with your heart to God, how great you are, how great thou art, um, something is happening to your image of God. Thirdly, the third thing to do to have an elevated view of God is to simply ask for it. 
Do you, do you remember Moses in Exodus 33? He's seen some of the greatest of God, and he says to God, show me your glory. God loves that prayer. He answered that prayer. Show me your glory. In Ephesians 3, the greatest prayer of Paul in the New Testament, basically he is asking God, show me your power and show me how much you love me. The, the height, the width, the length, the depth of your love. Show me, Lord God, how great you are and how loving you are. Do you pray that way? Church, I pray that prayer every day. I pray every day, Lord, show me your glory. Show us your glory for the people that I pray for, our immediate family, others. Lord, show us your power and show us your glory. Show us your love. Three things to pray this way, to see God this way. Scripture, worship, ask for it. Okay, that's the third thing we see, their elevated view of God. One more. The fourth thing is about what they pray for and what they don't pray for. Now, now keep in mind, life and death situation. You know, just think I came back from the authorities. I gathered you, and we're all praying life and death situation. What would we ask for? Well, we'd ask for it. This is what I'd ask for. I said, Lord, protect us. Lord, uh, take care of those folks. Remove them. Uh, Lord, put a shield around us. And it's okay to pray that way. Throughout Scripture, we see prayers of protection. But it's noteworthy. That's not what they pray here. How do they pray in verse 29? And now, Lord... Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Wow. Lord, pour on more fuel to the flame. They are telling us, Lord, to keep it quiet about Jesus. Lord, ramp it up and do signs and wonders. Clearly, their prayer is focused on Christ's glory and not their comfort, not their safety. It is a God-centered, a Christ-centered, a Christ-preoccupied prayer. They pray to a big God. God, you can do it. You can do it. He's a big guy. He's not a tame God. Lord, do it. Pour out, Lord, even more boldness. Stretch out your hand and do signs and wonders. So they boldly ask God for big things because God, whatever it is, He can do it. I, I cannot think of passages like this without thinking of when God said to Sarah, Sarah, next year, age 90, you're going to get pregnant and have a baby. And Sarah did what I would do, I laughed in unbelief. And God said to her, God said to her, is anything too hard for the Lord? And God says that to you and me this morning. Is anything too hard for the Lord? It's not. What happens when they pray? Verse 31 summarizes it. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. Whoa. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. God said, yes. And I think God shook that building in a literal, physical way, saying, I hear your prayer. And I am right here with you. I got this. 
I got this. The place was shaken. They were filled with the Spirit, empowered with the Spirit, surrendered to the Spirit, and they speak the Word of God with boldness, and the gospel keeps advancing across the empire. You know, church, the only book of the Bible about the early church, the book of Acts, at every hinge point of the gospel, prayers behind it. At every turning point of the gospel, there's people pouring out their hearts to God in prayer. They saw God work in great ways. And when we get desperate enough for God, that we too, it's our first response. It is our fervent response. It is our desperate response. It is our united response. It is our response to a great God. It is our Christ-glorifying response. Then we too will see the greatness of God. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said, when God wants to do a great work, He first sets His people to pray. Do you feel set to pray? I hope so. I hope you feel the Spirit leading you to set you to pray. I feel that way. Lord is setting us to pray. And for 15 years, we've been on a journey to become a house of prayer, and we're still on that journey. We want to see it more and more, but feel set to pray because we desperately want to see marriages around us restored and bodies healed and cancer eradicated and top five saved and loved ones coming to Christ and Houston to become a great city of God and revival to break out companies and neighborhoods and communities across our city and all kind of things to happen. And it will not happen apart from people devoted to prayer. So we want to be that. What kind of people are devoted to prayer? The kind of people who are desperate for God. The kind of people who are hungry for God. Who want more of God. Who long to be intimates of God. Who recognize how much they need God. Who know that prayer is the real work for God who understand prayer is the great privilege, who see the unseen spiritual battle raging around us, who long to see God do a great work for His glory. Those kind of people. Are we, are you, those kind of people? May it be more and more. So, we see the priority of prayer in this portrait number two. When we uh, look at something like this uh, situation we're in now that we need to expand room for more people, then we don't uh, uh, say a brief prayer and then depend on all of our organizing and resourcing and, and networking and things like that. Rather, we lead by prayer and we primarily see the, the key work is prayer. That's why I ask you, would you pray for three things during this making room season? Pray that God would guide us in every step that we'd please Him. Pray that God would pour out ample funds, more than enough. Pray that God would use this to unite us and build faith in us as we depend upon Him. Pray about your own part. Lord God, what is my part in this thing? Now, we depend upon God in prayer for everything we do. Our mission, love Jesus, journey together, bring hope. Our vision, Houston, become a city of God. For our top five, for healings, for jobs, for our children, for our ministries, everything, and including the very physical, tangible thing of getting more space to reach people. Because it's not about more brick and mortar. It is about the people that God has called us to reach. And so let me clarify, particularly for those of you who weren't last week, and just remind those of you who were, we need three things. We need more space for children, for Hispanic ministry, and for our worship service, particularly this service, second service. 
is sometimes the third service. Our children are out of space, and by the fall, the site map's coming up, and in that site map, there is a couple of those medium-sized red uh, buildings in the middle that's right out there. Those will be modular buildings for our children, older children, fifth and sixth, and then after that third and fourth, we need at least one of those by the fall because we're out of children's space. We uh, need more space for our Hispanic ministry. Now, it should be, uh, yep, that, there's it right there, and it's really back there with all those other portables. The flood in August uh, destroyed one of our eight portables, and when we rebuilt it, we rebuilt it twice the size. We're rebuilding it twice the size because the Hispanic ministry has been out of room for several years. They need more space. Thirdly, we need more space in our worship services, uh, especially the second service and the third service. And it's going to go right out that way in that empty field where that basketball pavilion outdoor court is. It'll be bigger than the, than the pavilion. It'll look something like that. It'll, be, it'll look something like this. It will uh, be a little bit smaller, but we will have concurrent services at 9-11, so we need that space. Fourth, we need to expand our entrances and exits on the Gosling as it's widened. We'll have more lanes coming in and out, and that'll help. We need a ring road around here. Uh, we need uh, more parking, the pink parking at the top uh, for that, that worship venue. We need uh, some flood control stuff, some remodeling of children's space, and more. We need those things. It all costs $7.5 million. We already have $2.5 million because you've so generously given over the last several years. Many of you have been giving not just to the general fund, but also to the building fund. So we already have $2.5 million. So we need $5 million. We don't do debt, and so we're going to save th thousands and thousands of dollars on interest. We will build as we go. God has given us a piece of property, 67 acres, that in 2006 when we, when we bought this land, we had no idea. We thought this was just out in the woods somewhere, that it, it would be such a crowded place. They're building houses and apartments everywhere, and ExxonMobil has moved in. Other companies have moved in. And God has given us the responsibility to steward this land well. He has sovereignly placed us here in a great piece of property. We can reach people. Now, we made room for you in moving to this campus and in building these buildings. If this is your church home, if God has touched you, and your children and your grandchildren through the ministries of this church, if you care about the people that God is sending and will send, then I am asking you as your pastor, stand side by side with us with the money and the resources that God has given you and help us make more room for people who are to come in the coming generations, in the coming decades. Our children and grandchildren as well as tons of people. Every single one of those people matter to God. If they're believers, they need a church where they hear the love of God like this. If they're unbelievers, they need to come to Christ and know that it's about gospel and not about um, religion. Uh, God has given us the opportunity. We stand on the shoulders of those who've gone before us. Uh, others who will follow us will stand on our shoulders. It is our privilege to give. Now, please give the way God leads you. No human being can lead you. If you're married, you know, pray about it with your couple. In fact, if you'd reach to the, front, the seat back in front of you, Everybody except the front row. You get that seat back uh, making room card. Uh, inside it, there's just this little place where you can prayerfully use this as a prayer prompt. Don't need to fill out that card today. If you could take it and pray about it and bring it back by May 6th in two weeks. We've already had some of you begin turning these in and, and encouraging me that, yes, yeah, is exactly what we need to be doing, Jeff. So I appreciate that. But there's a line about... Uh, 
for income, if you've got a job, currently have a job with income, or uh, stored resources, that means savings, stock, property, possessions, if God's given you some of those resources, if He leads you to sell off some of your assets, how God leads you. I hope it is clear for us, and not only in this project, but anything we do, we lead by prayer, that prayer is the real work. Lord, we need you to guide us in every part of this. That's our heart. And it's a heart to reach people, not build buildings. Would you please stand with me and let me pray? <coughs> Lord, thank you for these people. And I pray, Lord God, if anybody is in this room and they never knew about prayer to a personal loving God who's our Father, they never knew, Lord God, that we got a Savior who died for our sins. Lord, I pray that right now they'd come to Jesus, that they just breathe a prayer and say, Jesus, would you save me from my sin? Lord God, I pray that you'd pour out prayer at Wood's Edge in our individual lives. Lord God, with us as a church, may we too be desperate for you. Lord God, with this um, Making Room initiative, we surrender it to you that you would guide every step that you would provide ample funding and that you would use it, Lord, to build faith and unity even more. Lord, we depend upon you. Thank you for your generous people. In Christ's name, amen. Church, we've got communion elements across the front, the sides, the middle. If you're new here, this is what we do. We, we respond to God. We, we, we see the greatness and the glory of God in His Word, and we respond to Him, not just with worship by singing, but by taking communion so that we remember again, remind ourselves, we've got a Savior who wiped away all of our sin, yea, God. And as we come and take the bread and the communion cup, we remember Jesus, His broken body, His shed blood. So come and worship, church. Come and worship.